Welcome to our Digital Disruptor series where we profile companies and innovations that are set to remake and reshape industries, companies, and the economy. We hope you'll enjoy our interviews and always welcome any comments and suggestions. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another Momenta podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner here. And today with us, we have uh, Usman Haq, who is a founding partner of Umbrellium, but also the CEO of ThinkfulNet, which is a search engine for IoT data. Uh, we're going to dive into a number of topics. But uh, first of all, Usman, it's, it's, it's great to have you here uh, with, with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Ed. Uh, great, great, finally, to talk in person. Absolutely. And I'd love to start off by getting a bit of uh, context around your background and, and understand you know, what, what, what are some of the experiences and, and uh, influences that have, you know, that have really led you to the, your, your current role and, and, and the work that you're doing. Well, I, I, I guess I, I got into all of this in perhaps a, a not very typical way, although one can also say there isn't really a typical way to kind of get into the Internet of Things, I suppose. But um, I'm actually trained as an architect, and almost all of my work ultimately is about the kind of the built environment, urban environments, and kind of people interacting with each other and spaces and structures and systems uh, all around them. So my, 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 my career actually started out designing buildings, um, uh, designing interiors and things like that. And, uh, and I would actually argue in a sense that what I'm doing now continues that line of, uh, of, of work and interest, which is fundamentally about architecture and space and people interacting with each other. Um, uh, albeit uh, in perhaps a slightly different way to 25 years ago. Um, That's... Carry on. No, no. I was just, I was just going to say. I, I think the um, the that architectural approach to, you know, to smart cities is uh, it, it's 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 a unique but very essential angle because I think a lot of uh, when people hear about smart cities it's it there's a there's a you know technology uh association with that and would would love to get a, a bit of a sense of how you know how you how you think about you know designing spaces i mean what what does it mean for you know for a city or a space to be smart in in your view i think that's a great question and uh, you know to to kind of uh, give give you the punchline i actually think that the word smart is it just doesn't mean enough. It doesn't mean anything really anymore. Um, and and uh, let me expand on that a little bit. I think that that there was a time, uh, perhaps sort of five or ten years ago, where we were thinking about cities. And I, by we, I mean we kind of in in the kind of uh, the technology sector, but also in the built environment. We're thinking about cities very much in terms of okay, what can what can technology do to solve this problem, um, uh, you know, what can technology do to make cities better? And very often, um, the, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of discussion about this idea that technology could make things more efficient, more convenient, more secure, you know, optimize processes and all these kind of things. Now, 
the thing is that that's, that's great for a closed system of finite knowables. Uh, but that doesn't describe a city. Like, a, you know, a city is really an open-ended system where you can't even define its boundaries in some cases. You can't, you can't necessarily even draw a circle around individual problems that can be solved. You have quite complex issues that need to be managed, for sure. And I would never kind of suggest that technology has no role in that. But very often what you're actually looking to do is... Um, is is actually make things um, is is to kind of bring about improvements through people's relationship to their city, if you see what I mean, their relationship to each other. In other words, let's take transportation as an example. You know, it's often kind of described in smart city literature that transportation. You know, we could have smart infrastructure. Uh, again, using this this kind of word smart, and that there's a technology solution to it. But the fact is that there was kind of there has been smooth and efficient transportation, for example, in Japan, Japan for for decades in Switzerland. You know, they were there because of a particular systemic design rather than specifically technology. Uh, you know, piece of hardware or software. It was actually almost you could say a sociocultural phenomenon. As much as a, a mm-hmm. as much as a technical one, and so I guess that you know when when you start thinking about smart cities, for me, part of the issue is that actually it's really hard to even define what smart means, and it means completely different things to different people. And in some mm-hmm. cases, smart is actually not very smart, if you see what I mean. Particularly when it veers towards a kind of you could kind of call it the surveillance end. Uh, that's uh, you know troubling a lot of people now. Um, but it's also, it's not very useful necessarily because it's really hard to even quantify or measure or, or say when you have created this smart thing. So one of the words I, I tend to use more these days is engaging cities. Like, wh- what are engaging cities? And for me, engaging cities, engagement, first of all, it's something that city managers actually say that they want because there are processes or there are sectors or there are, you know, there, there, there are phenomena in the city that they want people to acknowledge and be part of and recognize the impact of. And in a sense, engagement, you can actually measure it. You can actually uh, assess whether something has been successful. And the knock-on impact of that is this kind of changing relationship that people have both to the to, to, to their neighbors and and also to the kind of governance of their of their cities. And so the, the the idea of engagement for me is um, is almost the, the the fundamental thing because if you like there is a technical aspect to it there is a socio cultural aspect to it there is a kind of a governance aspect to it and making all of these things work together uh, is kind of key. So there's a there, there may well be a very strong technology element to that, but there's also a very strong participatory element to that, and getting those to kind of work together is quite a design challenge. It's really fascinating that you uh, you've, you've touched on a number of 
elements or factors that come into place when you're you know, designing uh, a, a new system or, or upgrading a system. And I'd love to get your perspective. Maybe we take transportation, for example, and you made that point that uh, Switzerland and Japan have a, a, you know, have culturally uh, given rise to these you know, very efficient transportation systems but you know when you when you look at at uh, you know every system needs transportation every system every large city needs some measure of traffic management you know to 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 what extent are are you does uh does a unique culture inform you know what many people would think about as a uh, really a kind of a standardized approach to traffic for instance you have Standardized, you know, traffic signals with uh, with red, yellow, and green. You have uh, different types of, of of parking management or road management. Rules of the road are are, are generally similar. But you know, as you're you know as you're looking to uh, you re- apply a bit more intelligence, shall we say, to to existing systems. You know, what are, what are some of the, the cultural inputs uh, as well as, uh, you, I would say, uh, unique, you, you mentioned governance as well. And I think that's, you know, it, mm. you're, when, you're, when you're trying to balance, you know, many different uh, constituencies that, and stakeholders when you're, when you're trying to, to, to implement a big project. I'd love to get, your your views on on some of the considerations of of how you uh you know how how you balance all of these factors and and how that may differ from a from a small city to a large city or a a new city and an old city. <laughs> I realize that might be a bit of a broad you know, <laughs> a, a broad canvas there, but I'm, I'm very interested in your design perspective. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting that 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 you lay it out like that because I think you, you've touched on some of the the, the really meaty aspects of of, of the problem. Um, so I think first of all, the idea of standardization. Now, I think I think we can we can probably all agree that there is a benefit to having standards for certain things. And I think, for example, you you, you describe. Uh, traffic lights as one there is a kind of there there there's a there's a shared language about what the traffic light system is there for and and because we all know and agree on it actually that seems to work uh quite smoothly um but at a layer above that i think is where the kind of cultural or socio-cultural layer uh, uh kind of has a slightly different impact. And and so, you know, we can look at a city, let's say like Los Angeles, which is kind of well known for being a car city. Um, and that has certain uh, consequences, but, but there's also kind of certain assumptions behind the design of the city um, that prioritize certain things, which might be, you know, that whole sense of individual freedom that, that comes from, a, from having, from owning a car. And if you look at, um, the, I'm not going to just pluck any random uh, city from uh, Scandinavia, but, but let, let's say it's kind of a more Scandinavian approach where perhaps there's a lot more public transportation investment. Now that has a, a, a different kind of set of underlying assumptions and priorities and, and, and a different set of kind of consequences for what the city looks like in terms of its transportation and, and how people get around. And also, actually, frankly, 
how um, the efficiency of the transportation is even me- measured. Because I think there would be a lot of people who who would say you can't really even compare, let's say, Copenhagen and LA in terms of transportation efficiency because the metrics are it's like comparing apples to all oranges if you see them. And I think that 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 one of the the really interesting implications of this, particularly in the technology sector, is to think about well how do how does how does a, a company wanting to operate um, in these kind of different environments, how do they kind of figure out the economies of scale? How do they generalize their proposition? Because, of course, often a technology company is based on this idea of having, you know, a thing, a widget, a, you know, an algorithm or something um, that uh, through economies of scale you can just repeat because you figured out the generalizable principle and you can you can then kind of roll it out to, to lots of people or organizations or, or, or what have you. Um, and that kind of comes into conflict with the fact that every city is very unique in its kind of sociocultural makeup. Um, and so I think that, that the, the kind of the, the old model of a technology company going in to work with a city, whether it was a small city or a big city, tended to be like, okay, here's our all-encompassing product solution, or here's our platform, you know, here is our, um, you know, our, our technology stack uh, for you. And, you know, it's a kind of, a, we're delivering this as a generalized, possibly SaaS model type of system. But increasingly, I think that cities are balking at this for a couple of reasons. One is that the solutions so often don't actually solve or, or help them manage the actual issues that they face. Uh, that they face, and secondly, I think they're starting to get worried about being kind of bought into these, uh, you know, twenty-year uh, long-term contracts where they cannot then take advantage of new technologies in the future. Um, I'll, I'll give an example on that. Um, uh, a South American city, which I, I should probably not name because this was uh, described to me in confidence, um, but uh, the, they, they had contracted a European company to, to deal with all of their smart lighting. This is the kind of smart lampposts and things like that. And they had rolled out these smart lampposts and they were able to get all of the, de- they were able to see all of the data from these lampposts, which was great from, a, from the perspective of um, uh, maintenance and, and, and these kind of things, figuring out which bulbs need to be replaced and, and things like that. Um, but the platform and the data was owned by that very large European company. Now, when the city decided that or realized that they were having a bit of a brownout issue and that if they could get access to the data from the lampposts, they could start to do some predictive analytics on the brownout um, kind of uh, 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 situation that would that would take place in different parts of the city. It turned out that because the data wasn't theirs, uh, they would have to get a new license uh, for it and pay a lot more money for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the kind of thing that I think cities are starting to 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 get. Um, quite concerned about, particularly looking, looking at it in the long run. Um, the, the way that, that, that we 
tend to look at projects. This is so. This is with my Umbrellium hat on. Uh, so Umbrellium, you know, we we are, we are essentially a kind of a project-based company that works with cities and um, uh, and companies around the world to to kind of activate urban environments uh, and communities with technology. Um, with Umbrellium, our approach is actually to say, well, every city, to a certain extent, needs something bespoke. And there might be elements in our toolkit or our tool chest, if you like, that can be brought together to, 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 for, uh, for kind of economy purposes because it'll be cheaper. But ultimately, what the city needs is going to be defined by and with the city and more specifically, by and with communities in that city. Um, and what was interesting was that um, we so we came across I think it was uh, I think it was a couple of years ago maybe 2018 the smart city uh, publication put out by McKinsey kind of suggested the the same the same kind of approach to technology companies I'm I'm, I'm kind of uh, rephrasing it but they essentially said that the age of, of kind of technology platforms build, building a kind of a one size fits all model for cities seems to be coming to an end. And what cities are actually looking for in terms of value is the thing that has actually been produced for their specific context, their specific kind of cultural uh, context, their specific kind of community context, their specific even kind of financial context, if you like. Uh, and so that means that it is actually quite different uh, from city to city. That's an interesting point that you touched on too about the uh, the the desire to have flexibility, but also a you know the the, the accessibility of, of of having a tool set that you know that does have some standard capabilities. And I'd love to I'd love to go back a bit into uh, you know in, into the background of Umbrellium and 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 mm. talk a bit about uh, Pachube. Uh, which I, I think uh, was was launched in 2008. Could you um, love to hear a bit about what your original vision for you know for for that you know the the platform was? You know, what was what was the vision? T tell us a little bit about about the history of that and and ultimately you know how how you've seen the you know the vision and the applicability of of your original idea really evolving you know through the you know through the years to. Um, you know, to result in you know, what what you're seeing today, the dynamics that you're yeah. seeing today. Well, so, so it's funny because I, I think that often people think of has kind of referred to me as an entrepreneur, but but I, I I'm kind of a bit of an unwitting entrepreneur because the stuff that 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 I do tends to just be the kind of thing that that I think I need myself to do the work that I want to do, if you see what I mean. Um, and so Patch Bay was, was, was an example of that. Um, so in the kind of early 2000s, I was basically working, I'd, I'd set up a practice building interactive environments and kind of interactive spaces and things like that. And uh, still very much in my mind, kind of operating within the built environment and construction sector and trying to think about how building management systems and sensor systems in, in, in people's homes, but also in their kind of offices, how those systems might interact with each other and how, I mean, I had this had the idea at, at one point that buildings should be able to kind of talk with each other and, and kind of share information and strategies for energy uh, saving and, and things like that. 
Um, and uh, around sort of 2006 or seven, um, we had quite a few of these kind of projects around the world at the same time uh, going live. And I think there was like one in Japan and, uh, and, and there was one in, uh, in France or something like that. And we also had an exhibition in Boston somewhere. And, um, and, I, and I realized that I wanted to be able to monitor these things that were going live, their sensors and things like that. Um, and I built this kind of the, the, just a really simple script to, to grab the data from the different environments, the interactive environments we created, the sensors uh, that were in those environments, and basically to publish that to a kind of a JavaScript widget that could go into our uh, web page. So basically the web page would change in response to the environmental conditions in Japan or in Boston or, or France or what have you. And at some point I realized that with all these, well, with that web page being a bit of a, a nexus for the data coming from all these environments, that actually we could start to connect them together and have the space in Boston respond to somebody doing something uh, uh, over in Japan. And, um, and, and at that point started thinking about, well, why don't we just like connect up all of our projects? So they're all kind of connected and sharing their data with each other. And I kind of expanded that into another, uh, into a slightly more sophisticated, I won't say very sophisticated, slightly more sophisticated system um, where I could quite quickly add in these, these, these new projects, uh, identify their data streams, um, uh, kind of get the data in, in a similar format and then, um, and then be able to kind of pull in the data wherever it needed to go. And basically, uh, my friends and colleagues in, in kind of other firms and, and in, in other organizations started saying, oh, you know, can I, uh, can, I, can I do an experiment with that data? Can I put my building management system onto that system as well? And, and so on and so forth. Arduino had just kind of come out, um, and somebody connected up an Arduino to, to publish uh, data to the system, and it just started expanding and expanding, and suddenly realized that that this was something that 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 people wanted to be able to to kind of interact with remote data and do stuff with environmental and sensor data. And to be perfectly frank, this is what this is around sort of 2007 ish. Um, I don't think I'd even heard or uttered the phrase Internet of Things at the time. Um, I was thinking about connected environments. And so out of my design practice, I spun, uh, spun out a company called Connected Environments just to do this, just to manage this platform. And we eventually kind of relaunched it as PatchBay. Also, as you pronounce it, Patchube, I think a lot of people uh, called it because of the funny spelling. Um, but essentially, it was the idea of a PatchBay where you could patch any device plugged into the platform or environment into any other. Um, and it just kind of got more and more popular from there and ended up kind of being part of, you know, people doing energy monitoring, um, crop monitoring, agricultural monitoring, building management systems. There was kind of air quality sensors put on the platform. In, uh, it grew and grew and grew. And, and then in 2011, when the, um, the radiation crisis in Japan hit, uh, it became a, a kind of a, a center of people uh, sharing radiation data uh, uh, with each other. Um, it was used by an energy monitor company for their back end, and then Cisco was using it for their urban eco map. And it just kind of 
it just kind of snowballed. Um, and meanwhile, my design practice continued and we kept on building projects that used PatchBay. But by that point, you know, we suddenly discovered we had 50,000 users. There was a kind of an official Arduino library. There were, you know, all these things kind of happening. Um, and eventually we got acquired by LogMeIn, um, uh, who were entering into the IoT market at the time. And my team and the platform moved over to, to log me in to, to take it on the next step, next leg of its journey, as it were, which was, uh, which at which point it then became known as Zively, uh, uh, which was um, around 2011 to 2013 or so. Right, right. And, and now, now Zively's actually ended up as, as part of Google, which is uh, pretty interesting given the work that Google is doing in, uh, uh, in, in, in smart cities. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think what would be, be very interested to get your perspective on some of the uh, some of the use cases that that you've been involved with and I and I know uh, you know that umbrellium is you know has has been involved in in a number of different uh, different projects um, for, you know for instance uh, you know starling CV this uh, uh, the, this the the interactive pedestrian crossing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What are the what are the considerations involved with that, and 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 you know what 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 were some of the objectives and 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 the outcomes of of this of this project? It's the Starlink yeah. crossing. Yeah. So um, so in in 2013, just to give a bit of context, this in 2013, I basically decided to relaunch the the design practice. Um, uh, and rebrand it as Umbrellium, as a kind of an umbrella for all sorts of different projects. And the intention really was to say, okay, now that the IoT market has evolved, now that the notion of these kind of, well, let's call them smart cities, was kind of uh, coming about, how could we kind of bring the the kind of the architectural and urban design aspect of, of, of the work that I was doing? together with the kind of technological elements and the IoT-focused stuff that I was doing, but specifically focused at kind of delivering things for people, people on the ground, and actually getting people in cities excited and kind of involved in, in, in kind of thinking about and interacting with and making decisions about not just their own homes, but also their neighborhoods, and ultimately maybe even their cities. So the project that you mentioned, Starling CV, which is a, a kind of an offshoot of what was originally called the Starling Crossing, um, uh, essentially came about because we were trying to think about, okay, with, with the streets starting to get populated by autonomous vehicles, um, and as we can tell, most likely the streets are going to increasingly be filled with these kind of autonomous vehicles. What is the relationship that people, pedestrians, have with the street? Because right now the streets are entirely designed for cars, and people are a bit of an inconvenience. So you kind of drop in a pedestrian crossing uh, uh, somewhere, or uh, basically almost as an afterthought. It's not... The street is not designed from the pedestrian crossing up. It's rather the pedestrian crossing is added there so that people can cross this, this kind of river of vehicles. Now, in the context of autonomous vehicles, in theory, once, once 
the entire vehicle traffic is autonomous, a person could just step out into the street anywhere. And in theory, the vehicles will seamlessly kind of uh, avoid the person and, and move around them. But that's going to make for quite a difficult transition for most of us um, in terms of, you know, our, our concern for safety and, the, you know, not feeling like we can just step out anywhere and what have you. Um, and so we basically said, OK, how do we how do we go back to first principles, designing a road for people first? Um, in which vehicles kind of come as a secondary phenomenon. And we, we looked a lot at what is known as shared space, which is an urban design technique for, um, which is used actually in, in, in a lot of cities now, where you actually have people in vehicles and bicycles uh, sharing the same street. So you actually don't have a curb between the pavement and the, the, the kind of the, the roadway. Now, the, I won't go into a lot of detail about the theory behind it, but essentially, uh, for a given context, it appears to make uh, things flow more efficiently and it's also safer. I, I stress for a given context because this wouldn't necessarily work everywhere. And so basically what we decided to do was to try and build a shared space where the very markings on the road, uh, you know, where the crossing is, um, where the lanes are, where the stop signals might be, are all dynamic and adaptive and responsive to, to people first, but also to vehicles. And so the Starling Crossing is basically, it's a pedestrian crossing that learns where people's desire lines are for crossing the road and ensures that the crossing appears in the safest location. It's supposed to learn basically where the safest and smoothest crossing location is. And we actually built this uh, as a road surface um, in South London. It's basically, it almost looks like a huge computer screen, um, but it, it, it to, to, to all intents and purposes, when it's not interacting, it looks like a normal road. Uh, you know, it, it's glare-free, it's waterproof, it can take the weight of vehicles. But when people start to kind of use it, then, for example, if there's nobody, if there's nobody people, there, there, there's no pedestrians around, then there'll be no pedestrian crossing and the road will be to totally open to vehicles. If there are a few pedestrians and if they are waiting in, in a specific location, then the pedestrian crossing will appear and warning signals or, or kind of guidance signals will be uh, shown to the vehicles further away from that. Um, if let's say at the let, let's say when school lets out at 4 p.m. or something, suddenly loads of kids are trying to cross, then the pedestrian crossing actually widens and it appears exactly where the kids are running across the road, rather than forcing them to walk somewhere where where where, where which they might feel is too long and which they would then just choose to jaywalk instead. All of these markings are designed to look like and use the language of the pedestrian crossing that we, that, that we already know. The only difference is that they're dynamic and responsive and, um, and can be kind of configured to the actual time of day or the actual context of what's going on. I thought it was interesting that you had highlighted this this concept of of engagement, and this seems to be a you know kind of a common thread in in many many projects uh, that 
uh, you know, Umbrellium is is involved with. And I'd love to get uh, a bit of perspective and your just your thoughts on on you know how you know how how you think about using technology to engage residents and to you know to to in, encourage behaviors or uh, participation in. Um, you know, in bigger projects, in in ways that uh, that wouldn't wouldn't be necessarily be possible. You know, without without the the technology of sensors and 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 communications technology. So that's an interesting question. I think that what one thing I should stress is that our focus on on kind of involving people and getting kind of communities to actually be part of the process is actually a pretty pragmatic one, which is that we've seen now time and time again that if you don't involve people, if you don't get them kind of actively, you know, part of the, the, the kind of process, and this is both in the architecture sector as well as in the technology sector, if you don't get them involved, then they just tune out and all of that investment goes to waste. And usually you find that your assumptions were all wrong about behavior or about needs or what impact is required. So from, from our perspective, the whole point of getting people involved is, is purely pragmatic. If you, if you get them involved, they become, um, they, not only do they become excited uh, about something, but they, they, they almost help you see through the success of the project itself um, because they, 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 they become ambassadors for it in some cases, or, or at least they, they feel like they, they had a say. And so often in almost every single project, when you do that, you find that, that as an outsider, your assumptions have been completely challenged. And, um, and that if you had not, not kind of got them involved, you, you would have basically ended up deploying completely the wrong thing to solve a problem that actually people on the ground didn't even think was a problem, if you see what I mean. So when we do a project with technology, and you know, I should say that pr pretty much all of our projects are technology-based, um, because I think that's where we have a specific expertise. When, we, when we're using technology, we are almost in every case trying to think about not how the technology can make things more efficient or how it can optimize something, but rather how can the technology be used to help somebody make a decision or how can the technology be used to make, uh, to connect one person uh, or a person with somebody that they weren't connected to previously, ideally so that they can make a decision together, if you see what I mean. Um, and so the projects tend to be focused on this, on this question of, okay, who is it that actually needs to make a decision? And maybe more importantly, who is currently not being involved in making a decision that, uh, that should be part of the decision-making process, perhaps because they're the most impacted by it or, or what have you? And how can we use a technological intervention to ensure that that actually happens, that they are part of the decision-making process or, or, or what have you. Now, when you do that, what I've, what, what I've kind of found again and again in projects is that you, you build up new connections between people, you kind of reinforce the sense of, of um, if you like, of agency, of, of, of reinforce the sense that you, you can actually achieve something. Um, but you also get people feeling much more responsible for the outcomes. 
So, in other words, you know, when we do a project, for example, in um, in East Durham, in in the, in the north of England, which is ex coal mining territory, we worked up there for about two or three years uh, with the local community, um, and we ended up basically after a series of prototypes and exercises um, with the with the community, we ended up basically creating a uh, a, a totally public social radio. And it literally looks like a radio box that goes into people's homes and it connects to everybody else on the network. And so in some senses, this is a bit of a scary situation because the idea that everyone can speak to everyone else in their homes um, is, is a bit of a radical one. But we wanted to actually say, well, what would happen if you could speak to people that you don't know in your, but who you know are in your neighborhood are kind of part of the same uh, same phenomenon as you. And of course, the big question that came up almost immediately is, how do you govern that network with all these people, you know, who, who could potentially be um, uh, talking with each other or saying things or, or what have you. And essentially, our, our entire focus on, the on this project was to say, that's actually not our decision. That is your decision, the community. How do you govern this? How do you decide what should be censored. You know, we will help build the tools that you need in order to govern the system, but ultimately you need to figure out how you wanted to govern the system and how you want to also curate or encourage certain types of, um, uh, uh, of, uh, of kind of interaction or, or what have you. And what came out of that was, of course, there was a lot of discussion, political discussion, discussion about religion, discussion about, you know, uh, the elder generation, the younger generation, how do they interact? But much of that discussion was actually on the network itself, if you see what I mean. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that this is massively scalable. And, you know, if we look at something like Twitter, I think they've made a lot of mistakes in, in trying to scale up um, uh, civil discourse. But for the context, um, what, this, what, what this kind of enabled was a community of people that... that, that in some cases, you know, they, they didn't, even though it's a small town, they didn't even know people across the road, enabled them to kind of start to have these dialogues with each other. And what came out of it was, you know, so, some people would, would use the, the, the voiceover network to, do, to, to give bedtime stories to the entire neighborhood. Um, kids would use it to tell knock-knock jokes with each other. Um, you know, others were using it. The, some members of the elder generation would, would tell stories about... Uh, the old coal mining uh, times, which the younger generation have, have very little idea about. And, and so there is, there's a very difficult moment in almost all of these projects where, where we, as the kind of, you know, if you like, the kind of meta-designers of the system, kind of have to trust, as you hand it over to the community, that they will be able to figure out for themselves how best to govern it. And there is a bit of a, you know, that this is not just a, a kind of push it off the cliff moment. There's a lot of interacting and communication that goes on to, to ensure that handover happens. But that's absolutely key to, to it, that they've been involved from the beginning, through the testing, through the prototyping, through the deployment itself, and then... Uh, kind of they have the tools to take it forward from there. 
Yeah, that's really a fascinating case study. I mean, the idea that you can really connect community connect community in ways that that you know they they might not have been able to in the in the past and uh, open up opportunities for serendipity. I think that's uh, that's a great that's a great example. I I, uh, I I know you know that you you know you were talking about the um, you know a, a project in a smaller city or smaller community, and then you've also worked in in large uh, large cities as well. But I was I, I was interested. I saw that you had uh, that Umbrellium had has developed an urban innovation toolkit, and in some. Uh, prior discussions on smart cities, there's, you know, there one of the characteristics that jumps out, of course, is that every community is different and every community is unique. And mm. in many cases, there's a uh, there's either a lack of of uh, you know understanding, will, or, uh, or or experience and confidence to 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 try out new ideas. And I'd I'd love to get your perspective on the really the origin. Of of uh, you know what why why you put together the urban innovation toolkit and mm. and tell us a little bit about you know what you know what some of the cap what what it what it enables the the users to to accomplish. So so we we did a, uh, probably one of our biggest earlier projects was in 2011 in the city of Bradford where basically we ended up creating an operating system for public space and it was essentially a technology stack that connected together all the different technology in the public space that, that we could kind of reach. So everything from lighting to fountains to um, there was a camera system, sensors, LEDs in the floor. There was mist machines. There was a pool um, and, and all these sorts of things, the weather station data and, and what have you. And that was our kind of first large-scale permanent installation of, of a technology stack that took probably about three years of, of work, not just on the technical side, but actually working with the city to figure out what their needs were. Um, and at that point, I think we were, you know, I could, I could say that we, we were essentially flying blind in terms of, like, how do you do a large-scale urban innovation project what are the things that you might think of uh, that, that you might not think of when you do this um, that that would be important? And so we just kind of you know we we took down some notes about uh, about the, the the learnings. We 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 try and do this from every project. Like you know what did we learn? What did we do better next time? And so each time we did a project somewhere, um, we would take the kind of learnings from from doing that that process, from going through the urban innovation process. And some themes started to, to emerge uh, the, that, that, that did seem to take place again and again and again in different cities when they're embarking on urban innovation. Now, one of, the, one of the reasons these themes would emerge is because the way that urban innovation has tended to, to, to kind of take place is frankly, like, the federal or central government has a big funding pot and, you know, opens up some kind of innovation program and then cities scramble to say, oh, you know, here's what we'll do with that pot of money. And it becomes very much a funding-led process. But because of that, there are the, the, the kind of actual consideration of what impact do you want to have comes right at the end, if you see what I mean. It's not led by the impact, it's led by the funding call, if you see what I mean. 
So one of the key things that we realize when you're doing urban innovation is that you need to define from the very beginning what impact is it that you want to have. How are you going to measure it? And who gets to assess that? Now, um, and, and so, so for a while, that was essentially our, our kind of methodology was, okay, let's, let, let's start from impact and work backwards. But over time, we filled in a few other things. And we ended up basically putting this together into what we call the Urban Innovation Toolkit so that others can kind of use a similar framework. And I compare this a little bit to the checklist that a pilot uses to, to prior to takeoff in an airplane. In other words, this, this is, it's a toolkit that makes sure that you don't forget things, to make sure that you don't make things up, um, to make sure that the things that need to be connected are connected and that you've kind of considered the contingencies. It doesn't teach you how to fly, but if you know how to fly, then it makes sure that you are thinking about all the, all the things that you need to think about. And the five things that it centers on, and it goes back to these five things again and again and again, you basically have to do it five times for all five things, is we look at, first of all, problems. What are the, what, what are the problems that we actually want to tackle or to manage or to deal with or at least to recognize? Uh, who are the stakeholders that might be involved? Uh, and that is both the stakeholders that cause the problems, but also the ones that are impacted by it. What are the actual methods that are under consideration for dealing with those? And how do they relate to the stakeholders and to the problems? What evidence do those methods either need to prove that they're successful or evidence that they generate to prove that they're successful? So what, what evidence might you look for in somebody else's deployment that's relevant to your needs? And what evidence would you be looking for within your own deployment to prove to yourself that it actually works? And then finally, the question of impact. What impact do these things have? How do you measure it? Um, what happens if you don't reach the, 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 the goal that you're trying to reach or have that impact? What will you do instead? And so the toolkit is basically, it's a kind of a, it's a methodology, but there is also a software interface for tracking um, a, a kind of a workshop uh, uh, or, or ongoing conversation, if you like, uh, or brainstorming session around urban innovation that asks very hard questions about those five things again and again and again, getting deeper and deeper each time. Um, you know, getting into not just the problems, but the root causes of a problem. Like, why, why, why have you identified this problem, but you are not tackling its root cause? Um, you know, an example there might be, you might be doing an, an air quality or pollution project, and the question will come up, well, the cause of, uh, of pollution is, is diesel vehicles. Why don't you just get rid of diesel vehicles? Now, for obvious reasons, you can't just get rid of diesel vehicles, and there because we're, we're you know we, we we have inertia with all of these things, and and there are a lot of systemic effects. But when you explain why you are tackling the problem without going deeper into it, that that's that's totally fine as long as you recognize and you're able to to kind of um, uh, take account of the fact of where you are trying to have an impact and, and where you're not. So out of doing that kind of 
um, kind of going through the urban innovation toolkit process, essentially what, what you're doing is you're building up a shared understanding between all the different stakeholders who are discussing the, the project. Um, you are identifying areas of risk and uncertainty. Um, and what we always say in an urban innovation project is there's no, you know, there's no real problem in having uncertainty or having big gaps in your understanding as long as you know where they are. You know the the risk the the risk increases dramatically when you don't even know uh, the unknowns if you see what I mean. Um, and so once you've gone through this process, uh, you you have a much better understanding of what needs to be done and also the rationale and the consequences of of, of everything you're doing. Now and so we've now used that in in our projects all the time when we when we engage with the city. Yeah, that sounds really useful, and and uh, I guess the one the you know, one more uh, of your uh, innovations that I'd love to love to dive into is uh, the, your search engine for for data. Thankful, could you share a bit of the the origins behind that and the vision for you know for for what what thankful thankful dot net can uh, can can do. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Thinkful actually came about because after my time uh, working on Patch Bay and then Zively, um, this was around 2013, um, you know, I realized that at that point there were loads of data platforms. There were loads of IoT infrastructure plays. That almost every city started to have its own data platform. And we basically started thinking about, well, okay, if everyone's got their platform, how can we actually make all of the data that's out there a bit more useful? And so we ended up basically creating a search engine for IoT that would go around indexing all of these platforms. Um, in some cases, normalizing the data or at least putting it in the same uh, uh, semantic descriptor or, um, or, or data format. Um, and make it possible, for example, for you to, let's say, search for air quality in your neighborhood and then find not just the AQICN network, but also the Air Quality Egg network. You know, London has its own air quality network. All of these kind of data platforms are generating data uh, with a geolocation, but it's just very hard to find where it is. So we ended up spinning out Thinkful as a separate company from Umbrellium. And originally, our our thinking was that this would be a kind of, um, uh, if you like, uh, a, a data brokering uh, platform that really was founded on managing the permissions for access to all of this IoT data. Um, and so a couple of our, our bigger earlier initiatives with it were around connected vehicles and particularly kind of autonomous vehicles where the thingful kernel, if you like, was able to interact with and broker access to not just the data around the vehicle, but also within the vehicle. Um, so the owner could kind of control where their data went to and who could find it, and the vehicle could get access to environmental or weather or even traffic information um, that might be otherwise private, uh, but which uh, through the search engine has, is, is kind of brokering um, access to it. Um, and so we did a couple of projects that were, that, that were focused on the, on the vehicle. But interestingly, what we've kind of found uh, the, the, the best use for Thinkful actually, again, is, 
is back in Umbrellium. Like Umbrellium doing its own projects with cities uses Thinkful now as a, a kind of, um, if you like, a, a kind of a, uh, it uses itself as a tool. It uses Thinkful as a tool itself to deliver a project. So, for example, in in uh, in Asia, we're currently building an exper- an IoT experimentation platform um, for. Uh, uh, I don't think I can say the country yet, but um, uh, for all of their uh, universities to find and access and then experiment on IoT data from around the world. Um, and uh, in a couple of other projects that, that we're involved in are in soil monitoring across the EU, where uh, we are part of a consortium actually looking at ground-truthing satellite data with le- kind of uh, relatively inexpensive soil monitoring sensors in the, in, in the ground that the farmers are, are, are taking care of. Um, and the last one is we're involved in something called Decode, which is, again, an EU-wide project looking at citizens controlling their data and how to build services, both IoT as well as other kind of services on top of that data, but keeping citizens in control of where their data goes to and how it's used. It's really remarkable. You're involved in so many different, uh, you know, different types of projects. Um, I, you know, I'd like to just take a, uh, a view to the future and, and ask about forces or technologies or you know, developments uh, that you see as important to uh, you know, the evolution of, of you know, smarter, more engaged, more connected uh, urban environments and, and, and really what, you know, where, where you, what, you're, what you're most optimistic about looking forward. So I think that the, the thing that I'm looking for, which I kind of mentioned earlier, but in, in technology is how can, how can technology help us make decisions? and not make decisions on our behalf, if you see what I mean. In other words, not kind of dropping us out of the loop. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of kind of artificial intelligence and algorithms that are starting to make decisions on our behalf in many cases, um, I think that the issue arises for me when we have no idea about what kind of training data was used to generate the assumptions that go into those algorithms. So if anything that I'm, if there's anything I'm looking for in, in that kind of sector, it's, it's, a, it's for the technology to be evolved in such a way that there is a capacity to inspect or understand by, by people outside of the kind of creation process what was, what's actually going on and what assumptions were, were made behind it. Um, now, in terms of being optimistic, um, I, I think that, you know, I, what makes me optimistic is, is seeing, seeing people actually starting to get mobilized to take control of these things, you know, to, to, to really be aware of and have an opinion on and, and, and to a certain extent influence some of the technological decisions that are being made. I think, you know, if you look 10 years ago, 
um, there is often this kind of assumption that, you know, technology is a bit too complex for people. Let's just make things simple and, you know, uh, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't worry people with the details. Um, but, but what's kind of really interested me is just how willing people are to get involved in the details. Um, and particularly as we start to realize that technology is not just some totally neutral artifact in our lives, it's very much influencing and influenced by how we live our lives. Um, you know, I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised at how much people do actually want to be part of inspecting those processes and, and, and even better in some cases, uh, you know, creating those processes. So, so people getting more involved in, in designing and deploying mm. um, these kind of technological systems. I, I think we've seen the maker movement, which was a kind of an, an, an early uh, uh, manifestation of this, but I think it's be, it's almost become bigger than that. Uh, you know, in terms of people actually wanting to do things uh, and and be part of defining and delivering the future. No, it's it's really exciting, and I I I am you know so. Uh... I guess I'm I'm so inspired by how you've managed to tie together these these you know, these different disciplines. I mean, coming back to the concept of design thinking, right? To to you know really you know to architect and to build a uh, you know a create you know, the future in in a creative way and in, in and taking spaces that are uh, that many people have taken for granted and rethink them and and engage people and in. in and create connections that hadn't hadn't existed before, and and create new ideas. I think it's uh, no, it's just tr- tremendous the work that you, that you you were doing and and your team. Um, I would love to uh, just 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 wrap up as our you know, as our time's getting short here. Um, just to ask you if if there's if there's a uh, a recommendation you might be able to provide f- uh, for our listeners or you know provide any information if if you want to learn more about the the work that you've been doing. Um, yeah, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words. It's it's really nice of you to say that. As I as I think I said earlier, it been somewhat unwitting. I can't say that I've got this this big kind of <laughs> 10, 10 or 20 year plan. Uh, you know, we just try and kind of do good work and try and figure out how to do the next thing and make sure we do it slightly better than the last time kind of thing. Um, in terms of a, a book recommendation, uh, the one that, that springs to mind is a book that I just, I keep coming back to again and again and again, uh, which is a book called Our Own Metaphor. Um, and it was written by Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, who was the daughter of Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead at the end of, end of the 60s. I think it was probably around 68 or 69 that this was written. And she was basically writing up the conference proceedings of a conference that her parents had convened to discuss, and I, I'm going to try and get the full title right, I might not, but I think the conference was titled something like on the effects of conscious purpose on human adaptation. Mm. And essentially the conference was about, you know, my kind of layman's description would be, if the conference was about, okay, now that we know that we can affect the world, what are we going to do about it? Mm. And, um, and the book is incredible for a number of reasons. First of all, because it's actually, it layers in loads of complex 
thinking about kind of social systems and natural systems, environmental systems, political systems, um, all of these things and the interactions between all of them. But it's also notable because I think the debates that they were having then are so similar to the ones that we're having today. You know, the, and the, the kind of ideas and concepts that they were grappling with are very similar as well. All of which is to say that, um, you know, I think that the inspiration of that book is that 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 we that that we do that we do face some issues that technology can play a part in it, but really it's about us figuring out how best to share our stories and insight and just kind of rolling up our sleeves and get on and, 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 and do stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, and that's what kind of makes me optimistic for the future. That's, uh, that's a great recommendation. I'm really looking forward to, to checking that out, and we'll have, have a link in the show notes. So um, with that, I think that, uh, that, that winds up our time. Uh, again, we've been speaking with uh, Usman Haq, who is a uh, founding partner of Umbrellium, uh, as well as uh, a um, you know, catalyst for many, many other projects that we've, uh, that we've, we've touched on in the conversation. Uh, again, this is Ed McGuire, and it's, this has been another episode of the Momenta podcast. Usman, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ed. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, and we thank you for listening to our Digital Disruptor series of interviews. For further information, please check the show notes as well as our website for more information on the innovations and innovators profiled here. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. 